Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 780 with Josh Sharkey, founder and CEO of Mies. I think that's what, you know, chefs and restaurants, you know, are starting to realize is like, you know, if you really want to scale good food, and that's a big part of my sort of like mission in life is how do you scale good food is you, you got to have structure. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And Seven Shifts is trusted by over 400,000 restaurant professionals because it gives you the tools you need to streamline labor operations, communicate with your team, and retain your talent. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable that's the number seven s-h-i-f-t-s dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free streamline your clean faster than ever before with ecolab sink and surface cleaner sanitizer ecolab's two-in-one sink and surface cleaner sanitizer is one product that can both clean and sanitize food contact surfaces in front of house, back of house, and the third sink. Like other EPA-registered food contact surface sanitizers, it helps protect against foodborne illness. To learn more, visit ecolab.com slash unstoppable or talk to your Ecolab representative. What's up, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today, but a quick reminder to please support the show by using our sponsors, checking out our affiliates, and Joining the network, that's really where I'm putting most of my energy these days. I'm trying to create a piece of content every day that's live, which means you get to be a part of the conversation. Uh, so actually, if you were in the network, you would have been able to join us live for today's episode with Josh Sharkey, the founder and CEO of Mies. So Mies is like Evernote for chefs, but it's so much more than that. It's a platform that basically is one part uh, Evernote or note taking one part costing and one part e-learning. And I really do think it's going to be an incredible tool for the industry. And it's been recommended now twice on the show and people in the network are talking about it and asking for more information. So I, this is really the vision for restaurant stoppable, uh, specifically restaurant stoppable network going into the future is I'm just acting on the advice my guests are, are recommending or the tools and services they're suggesting. I'm going to those tools and services and I'm saying, Hey, come hang out with us. We want to learn more. People are recommending you. I want to find out where the, the value is, what the benefit is of using the tools and services that my guests are recommending. So that's exactly what happened today. Reached out to Josh Sharkey, the founder and CEO of Mies. And uh, we were able to share his story, share the story of Mies. And I was in New York City. I went to New York City. I interviewed the Little Beat. And uh, I was able to connect with the uh, not only their CEO, but also their director of culinary, Jeff Kornberg, who we were able to record a demo on site in the restaurant. I connected my computer to their tablet and he showed us all the features and why the little beat loves me. That episode is going to be going live. Um, that episode with the little beat will be going live in a couple of weeks. But if you head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 780 for today's episode, we will have the video of that demo 
in the show notes if you want a little bit more information. And like I said, if you're in the network, you could have joined the conversation live with the CEO of Mies. So uh, with that said, here's the episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. I'm really excited about this product. And if you are interested in Mies, make sure you head over to getmees.com slash unstoppable because Mies will give us a 25% commission uh, for you know just thanking us for sending people their way. And as a reminder, we only partner with the tools and services that are being recommended organically on the show. And thank you in advance for supporting the show by using our links. Here's today's episode. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest. He is the CEO and founder of Mies, Josh Sharkey. Are, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am, man. I'm feeling, I'm feeling more unstoppable than ever today. Yes, man. That is what we like to hear. And I cannot wait to dive into your story, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Uh, So I think for today, I'm going to give you uh, what matters most is not any one great accomplishment, uh, but what you can do consistently every single day. And I think this is probably the most over quoted quote for me on the show. Um, Constant gentle pressure, Danny Myers. Right. And it's like, and I think you can take that, that quote and apply in a few different ways, but I think it kind of resonates here too, is that it's, it's not about who can go the hardest, the longest it's about, but it's about consistency. I think it's about staying up and just finding that balance of constant. And it's the constant that's important. Gentle pressure. What are your thoughts when I say that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, look, there's a lot of cliches to that, you know, uh, you, you overestimate what you can do in a year and underestimate what you can do in 10. And I, uh, I, I try to do it with everything in my life, uh, even from, you know, from exercise to learning, you know, you start with like one small exercise that you do every day and you can just build up on it. And, you know, more and more, more so ever now with technology, I've learned that, um, you know, uh, you're never going to get everything that you want in, um, right away. Uh, but if you try, if you try to get it too fast, you're just going to fail. Yeah. Uh, so it's a little bit, it's funny because it, I, I've kind of bifurcated my life in terms of like tech and food. Cause I always consider myself a chef first. And then that now that I run a tech company, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a different world, uh, yeah. but there are some things that are, that are, uh, just a lot more heightened, uh, you know, when it comes to technology, but there's a lot of parallels to food too. And, I'm interested and- in that. And hopefully some of those parallels come out listening to you talk though. I also can't help but think, you know, I think you're right. We, we tend to be over ambitious, generally speaking, and we have these audacious goals and dreams. And sometimes I think we, we start off chasing these goals and dreams. And maybe after five years of chasing these goals and dreams, we've made progress. We, we've made progress, but we're never where exactly we want to be. But at the same time, I think it's important to, to, to have your eyes forward, but also to turn around and look back because sometimes you, you don't pay attention to the progress you have made, you know? And I think that sometimes we get discouraged because we're not, we're, we're not in our dream spot, but as long as you're chasing those dreams, you, you're still moving forward. And I think that's something that's worth bringing to the conversation. Is that, was that, are we, are we being a dead horse to this point or what are your thoughts? when I No, say? look, man, I think it's, I, you know, I'm probably guilty of not doing that nearly enough, not celebrating and sort of looking back and sort of always thinking about what's next. Um, but yeah, I think it's super important for a number of reasons. Um, 
So I, I, I would agree. Yeah, I love this. All right, so where does it start to make, or where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Because I know that you, you, you identify as a chef. You were a restaurateur. Um, you were the founder chef of, um, was it Bark, New York City, 2009? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm, and I, you know, I think to your point, uh, starting with that is probably good, even though you know, now I'm running you know, a technology company because uh, Mies wouldn't be what it, what it is if it wasn't for sort of like the, the, the way in which it was kind of birthed. And, you know, because I, I, I've been a, you know, cooking my whole life. Um, you know, I started in the, you know, when I was, I think it was 16 in restaurants. Okay. Um, but I, you know, we can sort of talk about that story, but that, 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 was, yeah, please. that was my whole life for like 20 plus years. Yeah. Let's get into it. Why, why did you get into this industry? What was it about this industry that pulled you in? Well, originally, I think like a lot of people, it was more of a happenstance, you know, like I was in high school and um, I had a job in a restaurant, you know, like a Mexican spot. I think it was Don Pablo's. And uh, um, <laughs> it was just it was more of a job, you know, uh, I'm not going to lie. You got, you know, got uh, d- didn't go to work sober all the time. <laughs> um, but uh, then, you know, eventually my dad passed away when I was 16. And so I had to start cooking, you know, for the family and uh, wrestling was always like a big part of my life um, through high school and in college, actually. So I always thought I was going to go to school for wrestling. And then um, I started getting hit up by um, this one school and uh, called Johnson and Wales, which everybody, I think a lot of people probably know, but they actually have a really great wrestling program. And, and so uh, for some reason it just sort of clicked and I started thinking, Hey, maybe I could cook as well. Um, and so I sort of applied for the scholarship, got the scholarship and, uh, found myself in culinary school. And, you know, that was in 1999 and, uh, I did not plan. It wasn't my plan originally, but then it, I sort of fell into it like a lot of things. Yeah. So w- at what point did you think that you had a, a knack for this, a talent for this? When, like, when did you know that this was supposed to be your path? Well, you know, I, 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 I won a scholarship for this cooking contest to get into school, which, you know, who knows what, what that really was. But then in school, I had jobs and, you know, cooking and I, and I enjoyed it. But I entered another contest, uh, which ended up being I didn't realize how large of a contest it was. I think if I did, I probably would have been a lot more worried. But I ended up entering this contest um, for it was like North and South America. And I think maybe maybe Europe as well. Um, and, uh, they, I, 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 I won. So they, they flew me to New York city for the finals from Rhode Island. And, um, you know, I was like this 19 year old kid and I was cooking for, you know, Eric Repair and Marcus Samuelson and Rick Moon and those guys. And this was 20 plus years ago. I didn't even know who they were, but I really, like, I loved what I was doing. It was really fun. And I ended up winning the whole thing. So I won this trip to, to Norway. So I got to travel through Norway with Repair and Rick Moon and a bunch of other people. And, and I fell in love from there. So you know, I staged at this Michelin star spot over there by this guy, Terje Ness, who just won Bocuse to Or. And I'm not going to let you just say you, you fell in love. I want to make you pull back a layer on that. What was it specifically yeah. that, that, you know, resonated with you about this industry? What sucked you in? Why, why were you in love? Well, you know, I, it was really, I think it really was this, this, this restaurant in Norway, um, Oro. Uh, um, I, I got a, a, an apprenticeship there um, shortly and, and, um, and everything was just every day. It was a new day. Like they, they got everything in new every day. So we had whole scallops and, um, and, you know, uh, they would take out of the shell. And I, re- I just distinctly remember 
slicing shallots with um in, with this knife and this and this cook like correcting me and um and kind of not yelling at me but nudging me that like it wasn't good and then i saw the same this guy was tremendous he was the entremetier and like um and uh you know i saw him sort of like at service like breaking down this fennel like it was a fish and confiting it like and uh like i was just amazed you know like everything was just done at a level that i had never i had never imagined and i was like wow this is this is so much more than just yeah. um you know preparing food and i i wrestled too for a little while I, I didn't take into collegiate like you did but i do see the parallels between being a wrestler and a chef because really as a wrestler it's just it's a competition against yourself every day to get better and better and better and i feel like that's a very much because it's, it's a solo sport really i mean you play on a team but really like it's one versus one you know um and i think that that's you can say the same thing about a chef it's you versus yourself you know yeah, absolutely. Um, do you think that that transfer you, am i making a is that a stretch uh, i i i do i think the more of the parallel might just be with wrestling i i i love wrestling i think um you know my my my, my wife doesn't really want me to do this but i really want my kid to wrestle because uh, <laughs> just for any other reason that that it just gives you a sense of discipline that um that a lot of sports don't i, I think there, there there are you know most sports have some some level of it but with wrestling, it really is all on you. And, you know, you're only going to ever be as good as the amount of discipline you, that you, you put upon yourself. And so that really stuck with me forever. I remember, you know, because when I was in high school and in college, I, you know, I would get up at 4.35, I'd go running, I'd go work out, go to school, I'd go to yeah. next practice, I'd work out. And then when, when I transferred that into cooking, moving to New York when I was, you know, in, in, in 2000, you know, I remember distinctly, I had a job and it was this thing. It was like the same thing. I worked, you know, from like 6.30 a.m. to whatever, like, you know, 3 a.m. most days this job, but like on my days off. And then, and when I did have time off, I would be at home practicing knife skills and practicing, you know, or trying to get a, um, you know, free work somewhere else, learning how to do charcuterie or how to butcher. And, and it was always just a constant, like, how do I improve? How do I get better? And, um, and I think that's, that really did come from wrestling. I, I, I'm, I'm not the least bit surprised. Um, it's definitely a competition against yourself for sure. And those are just like some lo- other like little, I mean, our, our audience is everybody from uh, people aspiring to be restaurant owners, people in culinary school to rest owner, restaurant owner scaling. So if you're listening to this and you are in the earlier, you know, stages, if you're, if you're learning, if you're a chef, if you're, if you're staging, like what, what Josh is sharing with us is key right now, go get out there, go get experience keep your liabilities as low as possible and just work for free. And you're thinking to yourself, but I should get paid for my work. You are getting paid with your network by growing your network, by by growing your knowledge. And I think what you did early on, like that is key. Why is that so important? Uh, No, I mean, look, I think it's everything, right. Being able to, um, to, to be self-motivated and to, and to, and to, to learn the value of, um, of that reciprocation, not always being um, money, but how do you, you know, what's the difference between the thing I'm doing and the person next to me? And, you know, the, the, that Delta is always going to be hard work. Right. And, and, and whatever sort of um, whatever sort of methodology you have for like striving farther than someone else. Right. So that sometimes it's just like, how do you like hone your talent and how do you practice more, but you can't just assume that you go about your day the same way as everybody else. And things are going to be the same. Right. I love it. So you, you said you got this opportunity to cook under Eric repair, uh, travel with Eric repair. Um, was he more of a, did he ever take on a mentor role to you? Or was it kind of not, did, did the relationship, did you learn anything from Eric is where I'm getting from this? 
Well, I mean, I certainly learned a bunch from from the time that we that you know there we did it we did a dinner together. But when I when um, I, don't know, I don't actually I still to this day I don't know why the decision I made it is what I made. But um, you know, I had I was lucky enough to have the opportunity mm-hmm. to choose between any of those chefs that I traveled with to to take a job when I got back to New York. Um, so I could work at, uh, for, for uh, Chef Repair at La Bernadette or for uh, Chef Moonen at Oceana um, or Marcus um, in Aquavit. And, and I chose Rick Moonen. Um, and, you know, I don't regret it at all. I think Rick is a tremendous chef. I think I learned so much there. Um, but to this day, I don't actually remember what, when that decision sort of like came where I said, okay, I'll, that's the place I'm going to go to. Um, so quick, you just kind of kind of, Paint the picture for us. Uh, you're you you go into the culinary or sorry, um, Johnson and Wales, uh, two thousand sorry, nineteen ninety nine. Was it a four year program? No, it was like year like a year and a half. I did I did like you know the two semesters, then I did an externship in in um oh my goodness uh, Nantucket, okay. um and then and then after the externship, I had like another semester that was it. It was short. Okay, so was your was your externship with Rick Noonan? No, no. So after the externship, I finished up school. And then, um, so I guess it was actually 2001 when I started working for Rick. Where's uh, Rick? Is he based sorry. in New York City? Uh, yeah, exactly. Oceana. So, so Rick, he, he has restaurants in, in, in um, Vegas now, but back in the day, um, he had a place called Oceana, which is still around. Um, the Lovanos family owns it. And um, a, a number of great chefs have gone through there, but, and it's changed locations since then. But uh, that's, I started working there just before 9-11 because I remember... I moved to New York in May of 2001, lived in like this basement in, in Queens. And in uh, September was when 9-11 happened. And I just remember like, you know, we just like switched from being a restaurant for a week to being a, you know, just fulfilling, like we got in like a whole Every tuna day. and made tuna sandwiches for, for the entire, you know, fire department. That's amazing. Uh, so zoom up to 30,000 feet for me real quick. Um, between 2001 and 2009, just kind of like hit the major stops a long way. Don't yeah, pull sure. back any layers. Just kind of take me on like a, you know, yeah. just a quick so, tour. So uh, about a year, about a year and a quarter with, um, with uh, Chef Rick at Oceana. And then I went to um, Tabla. Uh, I spent some time over and um, just like traveling a bit and then went and worked for Floyd, uh, Chef Floyd at Tabla uh, for a couple of years. Um, and then I left Tabla in 2005 and took on a job uh, as a sous chef at a place called Boulay in Tribeca. Um, and that was, that was, a, that was, a, that was, a, um, these were all really great experiences. And then after Boulay, um, I went to work for uh, Gray Coons, who's probably one of my greatest mentors um, at Cafe Gray. Um, and so I worked for Chef Gray for uh, from 2005 until 2008. And then in 2008 is when I started working on um, on, on Bark, the, 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 the project that I opened uh, with my business partner. And, and actually, a lot of that development was done while I was at Cafe Gray. Okay, so thank you for doing that. Um, any key... Where, where did you grow the most as a, not just as a, I mean, it's hard for chefs to not talk about being a chef. I get that, but really what my focus is on, I mean, okay, if you're listening to this podcast, I hope you can, or, you know, somebody who can cook, right? That's a given, but what we, what I really want to get at is who taught you the most about how to be a restaurant tour, how to run a business, how to scale a business, what it takes to not, to really 
be profitable? So, <laughs> um, I mean, look, I, I, I just named the chefs that I worked for. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to lie. That was, um, um, restaurants are not easy to be profitable. Uh, those restaurants that I worked at, uh, were not necessarily profitable. Uh, you know, Cafe Grey, we did 12 million in revenue and we were not making money at Boulay. Uh, you know, there was over, I think it was over 8 million in ARR and we, and, and, and not making money. So I, so I think a lot of what I learned about being a restaurateur was really, um, you know, lessons on, 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 on maybe what not to do or what we saw that was happening about how we need to adjust. Um, okay, know, this is gold, man. This is gold. Cause I think you're, you're hitting on something and this is something that I've definitely picked up, picked up on traveling around the, the, the nation, speaking to the most successful restaurateurs. Our industry is friggin' broken, dude. Like it, it's weird how like I'm, I'm going after the best of the best. Right. And there's still an issue to be to be held on these pedestals to be recognized as the best and to still be scraping to get by and, and worrying about how you're going to pay your mortgage and how, how you're going to pay your your employees like w- what's wrong with the industry in your eyes that what are we doing wrong why why is it this way well i mean look i don't think it's all necessarily um things that are that are done wrong i think some of it is just um um look perception is value right so people will only pay a certain amount for food, right? So there's, there's no real sort of, um, you can only charge so much, uh, you know, for a plate of food, um, which is unlike a phone where you can charge $1,200 for a phone, um, even if it costs you $100, right? Um, and so I think that the restaurant industry, part of it is just that there's inherently just a, a ceiling to the amount of like, you know, top line and, and the amount of like, you know, you can charge for something, which is a big sort of handicap. Uh, but that said, I think that, you know, the way that restaurants have operated for, uh, honestly, if COVID did anything, I think it, it helped sort of illuminate that, that, um, oh, vulnerable. You know, yeah, right. that, that there's, uh, that, that there should, there, that restaurants are not nearly as nimble as they, as they need to be. Uh, and they are a business first, right? So that before anything, it's a, it's a business and then it's a craft and then it's an art. And, and if you can't run a business, right, then you're not going to be able to do your craft. Uh, and and I think that that's sort of that's why so many restaurants go out of business. And I think it's you know, I think not understanding your numbers, not understanding sort of the metrics behind your business, and not understanding the levers you can pull, I think is something that uh, you know for many years wasn't even in the in the in the conversation. It was, is it good? And 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 uh, you know, can you uh, get people to come to come to the door? So you mentioned something earlier and I want to kind of challenge, not challenge you, but kind of just explore this a little bit more. And I want to take it at its value. You said that there's a ceiling, there's an, there's an, this, you know, omnipresent ceiling, no matter where you are in the restaurant industry of a certain profit, you're going to earn anywhere from say 10% to let's say if you're doing really well, 20%. Um, what has to change for that, that ceiling to change? Why do you think there is a, a ceiling? What's, what's the, the cause of that ceiling? Uh, well, I think the two, the OPEX, right, is, is obviously a big part of it, right? So including, including rent, um, you know, you, you, real estate is just, you know, gets more expensive as the day goes on. Um, and, and again, I do, I, I just think that there's a, a cap to how much you can charge for any of these things, right? So it, it's, um, you, you know, there's products that um, it, outside of the restaurant business, the, the amount that you charge for anything um, is, is, sort of gated by what people will pay for it. Right. But that's, that's happens in almost every industry other than, than, than the, than the food business. You can't charge $80 for a burger. 
Yeah. Right? Oh, I think uh, it's interesting. I think there was a period of time where we where success in the restaurant industry looked a lot like how can we provide more value for less, right? And like that was the trend for say 20, 30 years. So we got to the point where we were able to put out really cheap shit fast, right? And then it got to the point where that was so bad that we were like, wow, there's actually a ton of opportunity if we choose to put out really good, high quality stuff because there's a void in the market for that. And then we realized that, holy crap, it's expensive to put out really good stuff. And I, I, you know, I, I just think we kind of did it to ourselves. And I think that we need to have these conversations about like we need to figure out what the, the value of food is and we need to charge for that. And we need to help each other figure that out and to communicate uh, and come together as an industry. Cause th- I think that's the only way we're going to overcome it is if we educate each other and then we educate the consumer and say, Hey, guess what? The, the days of 9% to 5% of your, your salary going towards food is over. Food is more valuable than that. Like you need to spend more money yeah. on food. Yeah. To support your and I think it's a, it's a concerted effort. So it's, it's, it's also, the more that people are, the more that restaurants um, and, and operators are using great products and are using sustainable products and are buying from farms, the more that the the market for those things go down, right? So when I started Bark in 2008, um, which is a sort of a, a artisan approach to American fast food, and you know it was all sort of everything was all of our. Um, all of our sort of paper goods were uh, dispo- were biodegradable. So from potato or corn or soy, which by the way, was literally didn't, it was impossible to find those things. We had to sort of aggregate from all these random um, places to be able to get them distributed to us and into the restaurant. And they were very, very expensive. And the, and the meat that we we're using from, you know, a farm, you know, 30 minutes away from us was five times more expensive than, you know, any other, you know, just, commodity meat um and that has shrunk a bunch right so it's it is now cheaper to buy biodegradable products than it was 10 years ago it's now a little bit cheaper to buy uh, you know meat that comes from a farm nearby you right it's still more expensive but it's getting less expensive the more that people the more that there's demand for those types of products right, the, the, less, the less expensive they're going to be so it's incumbent upon all of us to really to to to, to continue to do that because that at least will um, lower the burden of that of that of that cost of us, right? The, the, our our cogs will go down slightly if we if we can use good products and it's not going to cost nearly as much as it did ten years ago. And again, that that price can keep going down and down and down. The change uh, is happening, man. I think we're making progress, you know, just for the record. But um, it's it's worth you know echoing this as much as possible, in my personal opinion. Uh, back to your your journey with these restaurant tours, uh, some of the folks that you were, you were working for, um, who, who taught you the most about how to pay attention to the numbers and how to be a business first is what you said. Pull back some of those, the big lessons you've learned on what it takes to just, I mean, let's just be honest to, to survive. If you're surviving in this industry, you're doing something right. So who taught you how to survive? Sure. Well, I think, um, um, I think that chef Floyd had probably the, uh, the smartest and most uh, um, intuitive, like the, the best approach to um, being economical about food, right? Because we bought the best products in the, in the market. We weren't, we were at the green market every single day. We didn't, all of our sort of meat was like, you know, we were breaking down all of our whole animals, but, um, but they were coming from uh, like amazing farms. And what, what I learned from Floyd was that you can do, uh, and also just the beauty of cooking, right? Is that 
uh, we used everything, right? And, and it wasn't just that we used everything, but we got excited about the little things. You got excited about the beet leaves. You got excited about like, hey, if we get this whole goat, you know, there's 20 things we can do and you can generate revenue from all of these things. You just, you just hit on something that's key, I think, that we need to get people excited. Uh, in order to do this well, we need to make it a game. We need to, we need to make people excited. So how did he excite people to do these, these like, w- what is the key to tapping into that excitement around how to stretch your, your product as far as possible? Well, I think that's part of our, uh, uh, our sort of job as, it, in this case, as a chef, but really in any, in any business is to sort of, you know, uh, motivate your, your, your team to get excited about finding new, new sort of like, like new ways to generate revenue from what you already have. It's funny because I always, I always sort of correlate um, business in general uh, to, uh, this is going to sound really stupid, um, but to whole animal butchery, right? Because, you know, and, and, and it's so, it's so apparent now with restaurants, right? You see ghost kitchens, you see people doing, you know, virtual kitchens and things like that. And it's like, you have restaurants that were a fine dining restaurant that were just doing dinner service five days a week. And it's like, dude, you're paying rent seven days a week, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? So it's kind of like you're buying a whole pig and you're just using the tenderloin. Um, you know, like you're, you, you're paying rent 24 hours a day, uh, and you have a kitchen that can execute X amount of, of, of food. So what are all the ways in which you can generate revenue? That's, that's really with any business, but in restaurants in particular, I think that restaurant owners are really starting to see, wait a second, you know, I need to figure out other ways, you know, other revenue streams outside of just the, you know, the coming in and sitting down at my restaurant takeout is now ubiquitous, right? It's not like. It's not something that just fast food restaurants do. It's something that every, every restaurant does. Yeah. I don't think that's going away. Now, I'm curious. I mean, we are kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, um, but what are the most interesting revenue streams you've seen, say, in the past 12 months uh, that has you most interested? If you, I mean, are you still restor- restaurant touring to this day? Or do, are, you, are you solely in 100% on um, Mies? Um, I think at this point, I've, 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 I'm as close to hundred percent in, in, in me's as possible. Um, so, you, you know, I've, I've stepped away from all my day to day with the restaurant group and, um, and you know, really talk about that. I think that there might be some, I'm going to shelf that. I think not enough people have an exit strategy. Um, I'm curious to see what yours was. Uh, but I mean, you, you, you didn't mention that there's this like this so much opportunity to diversify right now and to create other channels of revenue. And we kind of get stuck in the traditional way of making money in the restaurant business, I mean, some of the things that are coming to my mind right now are subscription plans. Um, just like you mentioned, ghost kitchens, really using your, your restaurant as a, a test kitchen to try new things to, to, to probe the market. Um, what are some of the other things you're seeing that that's interesting? Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think the virtual kitchen is, is obviously becoming um, really big. I, there's a lot of restaurants that are um, you know, creating their own, uh, you know, additional concepts out of their, out of their, um, out of their restaurant to, uh, um, you know, to take up a new day part. So maybe they have a breakfast concept or something like that. I think that's a big one. I think that, um, you know, in general, the, 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 I never sort of thought that that restaurants, you know, were going to have a downfall because of COVID. But I think that for sure, the medium in which food is being delivered is definitely changing, right? So now you're seeing the proliferation of, of um, you know, uh, um, residential buildings that have really great food. Um, you know, that was never a thing before. Um, I think that we'll start to see a lot more um, restaurant group, uh, not, not groups, uh, like production uh, companies popping up that are like Aramark, but are doing, um, you know. Yes. I'm so happy you're saying this. And I think that 
that's going to be a huge market to keep your eye on. I think there's there's mass exodus exodus of people out of cities right now. We don't need to be in cities for opportunity anymore. It's that simple. We used to have to go to the city to get the opportunity, but in the world we live in, we've proven that you know COVID-19 has helped us prove that we don't need to be on top of each other. We don't need to be in these big cities to work. We can spread out. We can work from home. And people are taking that cash they're earning that they were making in the city and they're moving to like the country with it and spreading it 10 times as, as far. So, and the other thing is we don't need this office space anymore. So you, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens to that, those, all, this vacant office space. I think you're onto something. I think it's going to become a very affordable living. And I think that there's going to be a lot of opportunity in these, these executive kitchens that are in these, 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 you know, um, these corporate headquarters or whatever. And I think that there's going to be a lot of like communal type, like, facility focused restaurants, like just, just for that building. I think you're really onto something there. Just think about every place that you've been where there is. Um, and again, there's a place for this and I get it, but like everywhere that you've been where there's commodity food, some sort of cafeteria or craft, you know, services, Ballpark, whatever. Um, there are thousands of displaced talented cooks right now, thousands and thousands of them. Right. And there are not, thousands of restaurants reopening anytime soon these i see it every day with me's with like we have so many customers of me's that are um cooks and chefs that are just starting their own thing i i like it's it's amazing to see uh but i really do think that there's going to be uh, an influx of great food in places where you weren't used to seeing great food hospitals will probably be another one right like why do we have shitty food at hospitals i know it's how ironic is that yeah (laughs) Because the hospitals are looking for more business, man. <laughs> anyway, that's maybe a subject for another day. Um, I don't know if anybody got that, but I'm, I'm going to roll off of that subject. So anyway, back to your story. Um, we were talking about the, the key lessons you learned with business from some of these mentors, um, stretching the product, use, getting the most out of the product. Anything else worth bringing to the surface before we kind of talk, talk about how you broke off to open your own restaurant group? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that there's um, there's lessons that from every restaurant I've been at that are not sort of that are not necessarily cooking lessons that I've taken with me. Some of them are just sort of how you manage, and some some of them are um, how um, like how you run a business. Um, I remember distinctly um, at Boulay, there was um, we had just um, oh no, this was before this, but at, at, at Boulay. Um, there was, um, there was some server, I think, um, and they were a dancer. They were a really great dancer. Um, and we had just, I think we had just actually lost our fourth star. And I just remember so clearly Boulay saying, um, he, he gave a speech and he was, you know, he was very passionate about it. And he, and he said, you know, if you can come, you, some of you are dancers, some of you are singers, some of you are, you know, are, are, are doing this as a side gig, but if you can, if you can give a hundred percent, um, while you're in this while you're in this kitchen or in this restaurant, that's something that you, that is not your number one passion. Think how amazing you'll be able to be by practicing that, you know, in your, you know, in your real, in your real job. So I, I've always taken that with me for anybody that, 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 um, you know, that's working for me that it, where this might be something that they're doing while they're working on something else. And I think it's, um, I think that's always been a, a great lesson. And also, you know, actually in the same, in the same, uh, in the same restaurant, this guy Cesar Ramirez, uh, really great chef, but you know, quite a character. If you, if anybody that knows uh, knows him, knows him. Um, but honestly, one thing he, he, one thing that he taught me also was, um, you know, Boulay was a was a 
I mean, everybody that worked there, you know, could attest it was a, it was a tough kitchen, but it was a, um, but it was a great one. And, um, but it was, you know, unforgiving and, and you could very easily complain about, you know, 15 hour days and, you know, pay being what it was and 110 degrees and all that jazz. And, um, but, uh, you know, I just remember distinctly one day Cesar saying, you know, um, a job is, a job is what you make it. Right. So, um, you know, it, and I don't know if he meant this by it, but to me, what it meant was, you know, whatever you're doing, wherever you are, it's only going to be as great as whatever you make it. Right. So um, I see this all the time, especially, you know, I saw it running the restaurant group. I've seen it running my businesses where you always have those, you know, those employees that are just upset about the way that things are. Right. And, and it's so much, it's so easy to sort of complain about that. Um, but it's, a, it's, it's so compelling to find people and ways uh, to say, Hey, wait a second. Um, I can make this better. You know, I can change this. And even if you don't own the company, uh, if you can find a way to make it better. And that's what I look for in employees is people that are sort of like trying to make, you know, make it their own. Um, and that, that, I think that that sort of characteristic um, is probably one of the most important things I find in any, in anybody that, that, that I have worked for me and that I strive for myself is to always try to, to um, you know, make the best of whatever situation you're in and, and not just the best, but try to make it better. Perception is reality. It's that, it's that simple. Whatever you perceive is true to you. Uh, but it sounds like it was this, this, I, this was kind of a, a triggering for you. This, this speech that uh, Chef Boulet gave um, was that, Hey, if you're, if you were able to show up like you did for me, for something that was just a job, like what could you do for yourself if you leaned into your own passion? So it sounds like that was a kind of like an enlightening moment for you where what, what, what switched, what, what switched inside of you in that moment that made you want to go chase your own thing? Well, I mean, honestly, I've always been sort of um, uh, entrepreneurial and, and I think that that, you know, I knew I've always known that I wanted to, you know, before that I always knew I wanted to, to, um, old my own restaurant. And so I did that, you know, I owned and operated my own restaurants for eight, eight, eight or so years. And, um, and so I always knew that, um, you know, that, that was, that, that what I was doing in the moment of cooking was, even though I loved it, there was, there was other things that I wanted to do. So I think that, um, you know, I think that was already sort of inside of me. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, like there's so much, uh, we were talking about like what learning the things that you shouldn't do. There was so much about Boulay that I, um, uh, that has stuck with me, um, about, uh, things, things that you should not do, things that you just to, just to consider. Um, and, you know, I think with any, any kitchen, there's just, there's just so many life lessons you can gain from the, from the, yeah, I think I want to pull back some layers. I think right now is a great time to take our first break to thank our sponsors. And we'll be right back, uh, to kind of dive into some of the things you should not do. And then obviously we still got to talk about how you scaled your business and then, Exit strategy, I think, is huge, and I would we, we have to talk about Mies, your, your your current project, and how that all forms. So we'll be right back. Who wants to be more efficient and cleaner? Everyone. So streamline your clean faster than ever before with Ecolab Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Ecolab's two-in-one Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer is one product that can both clean and sanitize food contact surfaces in front of house, back of house, and the third sink. Like other EPA-registered food contact surface sanitizers, it helps protect against foodborne illness and also kills SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 
in 15 seconds and norovirus, the flu, in common cold viruses in 30 seconds, helping you reduce risk, simplify your procedures, and help protect your team, your guests, and your reputation with Ecolab Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Visit Ecolab.com slash unstoppable or talk to your Ecolab representative. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure your profitability and restaurant success. Trusted by over 400 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the tools you need to streamline labor operations, communicate with your team, and retain your talent. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you already use and trust like toast turning labor into a competitive advantage for you and your business to get three months absolutely free head over to www.sevenshifts.com slash unstoppable that's the number seven s-h-i-f-t-s dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free get on it we're back and I, I want to see if I can't highlight some of these things not to do. I love the things not to do conversation. So what were some of the biggest things you learned not to do before opening your own place? Well, look, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's funny because I was, uh, we have on Facebook, there was a, there was a post going around about me and I saw some chefs uh, uh, in a heated debate about it um, about, you know, you, uh, recipes are sacred and they, they should only be on paper and, or they shouldn't even be written. And, you know, you, you, um, um, it's all about feel. And it's so funny that like my, I'm, I'm so torn with it because there's this like dichotomy of like cooking is creating. Um, but it's also, um, a craft. It's also a business and it's also, you know, you're running a team. And I think at Boulay, um, there was, no recipes there was no recipes for anything and so you, no one really like knew how to do anything and also it was very tough to learn how to do these things uh i mean look some of it might have been shortcomings and some of it might have been just there wasn't really like a standard of how to do things um and that was almost like touted as as a, as a good thing you know uh, i remember like uh this guy evan rich was on the meat station and and um and uh he and he has a really great spot in, in san francisco now rich table but um um, I remember he made a, a recipe for the pom puree, um, which is the pom puree was like something that Boulay was known for. It's, it's amazing. And, you know, we always use different oils to finish it. But, um, you know, he had this the ratio of the butter to the potato. And I was like, oh, my gosh, now at least, you know, now at least it's going to be a little less likely to get screwed up. And I think that one, that one of the biggest lessons from Boulay was that to be truly creative, to be truly sort of in your flow, uh, especially as a, as a chef, uh, you have to first be very organized. That's a big part of the pillars of what Mies is all about really is that I want every chef to be able to sort of create and be free flowing and be able to sort of think and change and, and iterate. Um, but to do that, you need to be, you know, organized and prepared and you have to have some sort of semblance of, of structure, uh, to work off of. Um, and, and, and I think that was a lesson that I learned there because there was almost none, right. It was every day was basically like groundhog day and every day was, um, you know, uh, uh, you sort of had to create the standards for your station. Um, and it worked when there was a lot of great cooks and there were a lot of great cooks there. 
um, most of them are now very successful restaurant owners or restaurant chefs. But those cooks don't are not always around, right? And so when you don't have good cooks, then you just have shitty food. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what, you know, chefs and restaurants, you know, are starting to realize is like, you know, if you really want to scale good food, and that's a big part of my sort of like mission in life is how do you scale good food is you got to have a, you, you got to have structure, you got to have a process, you know? Exactly. And I think that's probably, we'll, I'm sure we'll pull back some layers and how Mies helps restaurants do that. Um, I am really curious. Um, and, you know, we're kind of doing a, we're doing like a hybrid interview right now because I want to share your story. Cause I know as a restaurant tour, just through your come up, I'm sure you have knowledge. I think what I love about what you've done is that you, you think outside the box. I think that if people open restaurants, they kind of think there's a one track process. You know, there's, a, there's one track, you know, open a restaurant, then open as many as possible. And that's how you make your money. But I think there's also ways to make money in this industry by identifying pain points by identifying things that can be done better and then being the solution and then having that be your cash cow. And I, th- I think that's kind of what you've done, which I think we can learn from that. Um, but how did you, I mean, really just kind of paint the picture from, I say 2009 to present day. Um, I know you started, uh, you were part of the Orify brands, but what was going on? Paint the picture of what's happened in your career from, from 2009 to opening your first restaurant, which is Bark, New York City to present day. Well, what's going on? Again, go to 30,000 feet and just kind of give us that big picture. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think, you know, with Bark, we set out to uh, change the perception of fast food in America, right? So that was sort of our our, our goal. My, when I say our, my, myself and my, and, and my business partner at the time. Um, and, you know, for me, I never want to do anything that is just um, status quo. I never really want to, like, I'm not a big fan of competition. So, and that's why I, I'm a, a, I love Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, because it's, it's, it really resonates. You, know, you either build something that's 10 times better than everything else that exists or build something that doesn't exist at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I've, I've tried to do that with everything I've done as an entrepreneur. Um, and it's, you know, it's something that will, will always stick with me is that, you know, and so sort of paint the picture, started Bark in 2000 and we signed at least 2008. It was built by 2009, opened three or four locations of that over the course of like eight or so years. And then through that time, the whole time I knew I really wanted to build this thing, Mies. And, and, and candidly, like, you know, I loved Bark, but it was, um, it was um, something that I had planted to sort of build and then sort of migrate to the next thing. And, and my business partner ended up moving to San Francisco, um, you know, to be with his family. And, um, and so I ended up staying on with Bark a lot longer than I had planned. Um, but after, uh, after about eight years, I knew sort of, I, okay, my next, you know, I really want to start focusing on building Mies. Uh, and that was around 2015. And I'd already been working on it sort of like, um, you know, just doing all the due diligence and sort of just asking all my friends and my network, like, what do you guys use? What, what do you, you know, what tools do you use? And that's sort of when I came across Orify. We had, Orify uh, and I had been um, chatting for a while. The CEO, uh, Andy, is a really, really great guy. And, and um we had connected a couple times uh, just about sort of investments and things like that. And um, I, I ended up sort of like, uh, you know, making a deal to come to Orify and, um, and essentially saying, look, well, I'll, I'll, I'll come work here and you'll, uh, you know, help me to uh, get the, the resources I need to build Mies and I'll, you know, I'm going to help scale this business, right. From, you know, from a culinary standpoint. So came to Orify, 
um, that was, it ended up being, you know, a little over four years. Um, uh, I left there in January of last year. I was chief operating officer. Uh, and so from that time, you know, I think we had like, I don't remember, like eight locations and now there's over a hundred um, and, you know, and six, six or seven brands, um, you know, across, across the country and, um, you know, a couple of acquisitions along the way. And so learned a ton there and built a lot of what we, of, of what, um, Mies has become, we built within the, the Orify ecosystem before we started rolling it out to a lot of other restaurants. Um, and then, you know, as of about a year ago, um, I've been, I've been hundred percent focused on, on Mies. So I'm going to make some assumptions here. Feel free to correct me, but it sounds like what the, the, the origin of Mies came from you recognizing that in order to scale something, you need systems, processes, procedures, but one of the hardest things to scale is the recipe like is scaling recipe scaling food done well so you wanted to create a tool and that was a pain point that you identified you said hey this is a big challenge this is a big pain point for scaling is how do we scale the the skill of doing food well and how do we create system and process around that so we can have somebody who's a creative be the creative and then have a platform to load that creativity up to so it can be recreated through multiple concepts all over the nation is that kind of uh, well, you know, Eric, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest that I, that sounds, that sounds awesome. And I think you that, need much that credit. <laughs> it came to, it became that while I was at Orify originally, just to be honest with you, the, the, the impetus for me is originally came in 2000 and, um, 2004, I was working for chef Floyd at Tabla and I was working in the morning for free for, uh, Vitaly at his, at his charcuterie shop in Union Square, and I had this book like this with hundreds of, um, of all the recipes of, um, you know, of all the charcuterie I was making and the humidity, the temperature, the percentages of each thing, the, the time, all the little notes about, um, you know, moisture levels and things like that, bacteria. And I fucking lost the notebook. And I, uh, I, was, I was like trailing at this, uh, you know, I used to just trail for fun. I was like, it was like, get that notebook, that, that notebook's gold. That was probably stolen. Yeah. So, so I left it. I lost it. I was like, trail, I think it was called, I think it was at Veritas. I was like trailing there just for fun. And, and, um, and I, and I lost it. And so again, this was 2004. Evernote didn't exist. So originally I was like, I want a place to store everything digitally. Like I want all my notes digital. You know, of course, now that's really easy, right? So Evernote exists for that. Um, I'm you're using Evernote, Evernote as a, an example because I've been re- I've been explaining to people that Mies is like Evernote for chefs. Yeah, well, that, that that's honestly that was originally what I wanted to do was build Evernote for chefs, and then so fast forward, um, once I started like um, you know working on this idea, I realized there was something more to it than this, right? Because you know, I think in 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 business, especially in the sort of technology business, there's this there's a sort of adage of like you're either building a vitamin or you're building a painkiller, right? A vitamin is a nice to have and a painkiller is a need to have, right? Um, and so, you know, compounded on top of that sort of that, that, that anecdote, I, I, I was pissed that chefs don't have a tool for ourselves, right? So like I've hired designers and I've hired architects and, you know, um, and photographers and I, and I see the things that they use and they have AutoCAD and they have Figma or Adobe and they have Photoshop and, and, um, and, you know, so mostly I'm just like, why don't we have our own tool? Like we're, we're a pretty big industry as well. We're professionals, we're a craft. Second um, largest industry. Yeah. So, yeah. 
So that was, that's honestly my number one sort of mission, right? Is to build the tool for the culinary industry, right? And, and unfortunately today, when you think of recipe software, which is mostly what's synonymous with culinary, you think of inventory, which is fucking crazy. Like that's an accounting thing. You need to do that to account for the cost of your recipes or a cost of like, if you need to get an actual versus theoretical food cost and you want to get beginning inventory, inventory, that's all very necessary, but that's not culinary, right? That's, that's accounting. Right? Yeah, um, and you have to get a recipe into that thing. And we're working on lots of really cool ways to, to sort of push recipe data to those systems, but it's not a culinary tool. Um, and so for me, the, 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 the inspiration was to build a tool for us. Um, and what I will say is along the way, you know, my investors were, um, you know, my original investors were, were, were with Orify and Orify is a very large restaurant group. And um, whereas they also very, they, they, they were super appreciative of the, of the sentiment of what I was building. They also of course wanted something that um, did the other part of the business as well. So we spent a lot of time, which ended up being invaluable. Um, uh, I spent a lot of time building the other side of the, of the tool as well, so that you can get all that sort of output that you need of cost and things like that, um, but still have a tool that's really built for, built for culinary. And there's a lot sort of that goes into how we did that. And I think that's kind of like the special sauce um, have, and happy to talk about that. But um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm, the great thing about what we're doing is also the hardest thing about what we're doing is that um, there really isn't any competition, right? There's, there's, because there's not a tool for chefs. There's not a. Um, yeah. And you're you know, bringing up a really great point. You mentioned it earlier and it's the zero to one and, or there's a lot of different things. And I, I talk about this all the time on the show when you're, when you're, if you can create something and it's a unique thing that's never been done before, you instantly are number one. You're instantly the best at it. Uh, I think there's something to be said about doing one thing really well. And it doesn't have to be an invention. It could just be a void in whatever market you're in, you know, uh, but just focus on doing one thing really well and, and, and own that one thing. And, I, and I, I really support that sentiment. And also another thing that we can pull from your story is where is your pain? What's your challenge? Like, what do you, like, what's the one thing that you wish you could change about your life? Odds are somebody else has the same pain point. And if, and that's exactly how restaurant unstoppable podcast was formed was I was a young dude, 26 years old, looking to learn from successful restaurant tours, how they did it. And that, that podcast did not exist. And I said to myself, I cannot be the only one that wants a hyper-focused restaurant business podcast. I cannot be the only one that wants to hear the stories of successful restaurant tours. So I, I created it, you know, and there's something to be said about that. So if you're listening to this and you're in the industry and you found a pain point and, and, and you, and you've created a solution or you have an idea for a solution, lean into that, make that like, like that, that could be your cash cow. That could be your break. So I just want to highlight those things. It's super important. Um, I really want to start pulling back the layer on me's now. Uh, so really ex explain, explain the platform to us. And I, I know we're going to try to schedule a demo, a live demo. I don't know when that's going to be. Um, but if you, if you join restaurant, we will let you guys know when that live demo will be. I'm going to be connecting with a little beat tomorrow and hopefully they're going to demo because they're, they're one of your biggest um, advocates. Right. Um, so just kind of paint that picture, really kind of take us through, the benefits of me's and, and how these restaurants who are the early adopters are truly being like benefiting from this thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think, you know, first and foremost, it's a, it's a culinary content platform. It's, it's where you sh should store everything um, that relates to culinary. That means all your recipes, all your processes, you know, um, everything in one place, right? Um, obviously, the, 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 the origin of Mies is mise en place, and every, you know, everybody knows what, what, what that means, or it, if you don't, it means everything in its place. Um, but um, the, the idea is, uh, we want to have one place where all that stuff lives. And of course, you, you know, we built um, really sort of dynamic sort of proprietary search engines that, that let you find that content really easily, way easier than you could if you had it in say Google Drive or something like that. Um, so on top of that, it is a recipe development training and costing tool. Um, and so uh, the, the primary technology is really focused on um, on the management and sort of uh, creation and use using uh, recipes, right? So um, we spent, uh, you know, about now it's been almost six years uh, building out a database of thousands and thousands and thousands of ingredients, all customizable in the app, but they're all built in so that um, you have your yields and conversions uh, for everything that you, that you can think of already sort of in the app, right? So when you want to use Julian. Um, you know, torpedo shallots, or you want to use, um, you know, uh, uh, a oblique carrot, or you want to use peeled red onions, um, or you want to use dark rye flour, all that sort of all the sort of like, uh, weight to volume to each is all sort of built out for you, and you can customize it. Um, and then we built all the sort of scaling, which in the way that you would actually scale recipes. So I think, um, and I'm going to get a little bit granular, but whatever, it's fine. Um, you know, one thing that always pisses me off about recipe apps is like, you know, when you can scale something and it's like, I'll take, I'll make two, the two X or I'll make four X or five X. Um, well, uh, usually what happens, not usually always outside of me is like, if you see, if you have something that's in teaspoons or in kilograms or in conversion uh, gets messed up. Yeah. I mean, it's going to show you 47 teaspoons of something or 0.045 cups, which is literally useless, right? There's nothing I can do with that. Right. So it turns out the logic to build that was very hard, but we spent a, a long time building out all the logic so that when you scale down or you scan, scale up, all your units of measure are going to convert the way you actually use them. So you're going to get three gallons plus three quarters of a cup if you scale that cup up a bunch. And if you scale down, you might get, you know, three quarters of a teaspoon as opposed to 0. 0.0045 cups. And the same thing with kilograms and all that jazz. Um, and then uh, the way that you get your content in there uh, is also sort of one of the sort of biggest sticky uh, sticking points of the of the of the software because we spent uh, months and months and months working on um, you know how do you get all this disparate recipe data recipe content into one platform that can then be like structured right so that you can actually search it and you can access your recipes and sub recipes and search your ingredients and scale it up with and have that scaling actually work and so. Um, you know, first we spent a couple of years analyzing thousands and thousands and thousands of recipes. Understanding that I have a cognitive bias about like how I might write a recipe, so that so so um, you know we just looked at every recipe format you can think of from Word docs and Excel docs and PDFs and websites and PowerPoints and notebooks, and we said how do we um, start to build structure on this so that you can take that and copy it and then paste it into Mies, and we know that you mean Julian you know, shallots, right? Even if you write, you know, something random or you misspell it or you use a different word, you use ju instead of juice or, um, or you put the word first or the number first. And so, so uh, it's really, really, really quick to get all your content in. 
And so now let's uh, now you have all your content in this platform, right? It's all scalable, it's all searchable. Uh, because of all that yield and conversion data, you can get costs really quickly, right? So if you use if you have a recipe that has you know a, a half a cup of shredded lettuce and you know three peeled shallots and you know uh, a quarter cup of of um, uh, you know, brown sugar, I'm just kind of making up it's a recipe. It sounds crazy, actually. But um, all those things, no matter if you buy that lettuce by a 24 count case, which is probably by how you buy it, even if you buy it that way, but you just put a half a cup of shredded lettuce, it's already costed for you. I might be talking gibberish to somebody that doesn't have to put recipes into a costing system. But if you do, you know my pain. And it's insane. So it's like a fun little fact is that less than 20% of, um, of all sort of um, users of inventory software actually put recipes into that software because it's so difficult to do that. So um, we're, we're sort of removing that sort of pain point for everybody so you can get recipes uploaded really quickly, get your costs really quickly. And then um, we have some really cool ways in which you can uh, share access uh, with, of those recipes to your team to so make sure see the most you know recent um, recipe and that they're seeing live updates and, and all that jazz so you, you dropped a ton on us and I, i'm loving every bit of it i'm taking notes i want to start dissecting some of the benefits the features that you've created in Mies. um one of the first questions i have that comes to mind as you're describing this this product i'm thinking to myself this sounds like a like me sounds a lot like the digital form of the flavor bible I don't know if you're familiar with that book, Karen. I am familiar with that book. Yeah. So, and I'm just curious. um, So when you open the flavor Bible, it's basically just a database of all these ingredients, the, the, the nutritional value, the calories, the the best, best uh, methods of preparation. um, What pairs well with these things and the flavor infinities. I mean, like what's stopping you? Have you thought about like having features like that? Like, Oh, like these are the, these are the ingredients I have in my walk-in right now. Um, how do yeah, I yeah. use this up? Like, how can I pair these things? Is, is, has it gotten to that, that place? Uh, so we, we keep a list of feature requests from all of our users. And it's, um, it's definitely one of the top that we've gotten is like, can you, can you just integrate the flavor Bible data into the ingredients? And the, the answer is yes. I would, I actually, I would, I would do it without. Um, do you know, Karen Bible. Page? I'll make the introduction. I'm sure. Um, you're very yeah. Known. I mean, I would, I would honestly, I would obviously want to have them benefit from that somehow, but um but the way that we built our data infrastructure is such that we can we can continually add more. We can keep enriching it with more things, right? So that onion that or that shallot that now has yield and conversion data and has allergen data and has nutrition data, we can start adding. You know, we can add the history of the shallot to it. We can add what things it pairs well with. We can add chemical sort of compounds. Another feature that I'm seeing this being really beneficial is a lot of people want to know right on the menu, smack dab, like what is the nutritional value? What's the total calorie count of this meal I'm about to consume? And if you know, if you know the, the, the portions, the ratios that are going into one serving, that's a really easy thing to calculate with a tool like me's, I would assume. Yeah, it's our, that's actually uh, the next, our next release is, is, um, is nutrition. And we, we've spent some time on, I wanted to make sure when we release it, we were going to release it at the end of last year, but I want to make sure when, when it's released, uh, uh, it's the number one requested feature, by the way, yeah. um, is, yeah, so. is it's easy to use, right? Because I've seen all this software that, that um, you know, a big part of, and, I, and again, I think this is with, you know, for, for any business and it's sort of how I think about, um, it's one of the principles for how we build uh, with Mies is that 
um, nothing really matters like in terms of um, a report or a feature or a tool unless it's actually usable every day, right? So, um, you know, a nutrition tool is great um, if you could use it on the fly or you can use it as you need, but if it takes you an hour to get the nutrition for a recipe, it's to me, that's sort of like a waste of time. It's kind of like seeing, you know, a report of, you know, of, of sales from the last uh, three weeks when I'm trying to do, you know, purchasing. It's like, I want to know today what's going on. So I think the other things we haven't really pulled back the layers on, I think we've identified this first and foremost as a recipe development tool, um, a way to, to keep track of your notes on how to get to that end point every time. It's a costing tool, which we've identified, um, which is huge. Um, and it's a training tool. And I think the costing tool and the training tool are probably as far as ROI, the two big ones I would think of. Like I'm going to invest in this tool. Like obviously it's great to have my, my, my mise en place with my recipes. That's that in itself is inherently valuable. But I think where you really start to get your return on investment is streamlining the costing process. And more importantly, um, th- this is, is, this is also, sounds like an e-learning platform essentially for recipes and cooking. Is it yeah, right? absolutely. I think, that, you know, a big part of the, of the training tech is, um, is making it really easy to get, um, all of your, um, you know, all your material in there. So, uh, you know, we built video and image compression so that you can very quickly, almost like Instagram stories, add in all of your prep steps as videos or pictures from your phone and, and as well as sort of like just any sort of general documentation that you have and matching formats. And, um, you know, I, I always find that, um, you know, people learn best um, just in time, not just in case. And so, you know, the, the, the more that they have, when they're looking at a recipe, if the chef, if there's steps where the chef is showing them, hey, when you're reducing these shallots, look for this, right? This is the this is the color that you want. You want to make sure you're scraping the side like this. And when you pass this through the Tammy, look out and, and showing them that, right? In a video that you can actually update in real time if people are making mistakes. And we see it all the time now. We see it where chefs are noticed that there's mistakes being made. They update the recipe with a new video prep step. And everybody in all of the locations are getting right away a new sort of the updated sort of uh, training training guidelines. And we're also, you know, in the beginning stages of partnering with. Um, um, I, I'll, 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 I'll be a little bit coy about this, but we are becoming the recipe technology for a, a really, a really great culinary school, and that's been a big part of how we've been building um, the, the learning part of culinary as well, of how we, of how we, um, of how we leverage the Mies Tech to to use it as a training platform. I love this, man. Um, anything we have not identified up to this point as far as unique selling propositions, return on investment. Um, how is this thing really going to make you and your team more efficient? Now's the time to unpackage this so we can leave time for Q and A. Sure. I mean, look, I think at the end of the day, um, uh, you know, anybody that's, and I think that most people are, that are listening to this are operators. Um, and this is, we built a tool for, uh, for operators, right? This is not a tool that's academic, right? It's not a tool that you spend four months, implementing so that you um, you can at some point get some sort of output of, of, of cost or some sort of metric of analytics. Like today, the day you start using me is, is the day you start getting value out of it. Um, and it's and, and it's built to really just be um, super easy to use so that, that anybody can start picking up and using it. So, and the more feedback we get, the more we improve upon that. So um, I think for me as a, as a, as an operator, as a chef and as a, and, and, you know, as a former restaurant owner, like that's the most important 
uh, attribute of any tool that we use like in the restaurant, right, is, uh, is it's got to be usable. It's got to be something that like you can actually apply and use on a day to day. And so that is hopefully what comes through when you when you first pick up Mies. I love it. Um, so one thing I kind of want to get at, and this is kind of being maybe a little bit of a bonus feature or a bonus contribution to today's conversation. Um, this idea of an exit strategy uh, within the industry. Um, you were able to, you know, scale your business uh, to to the with the Bark New York City and to, to join. I mean, like how, what advice do you have for an exit strategy as far as how to build something, how to create value and how to sell it um, to to create more opportunity for yourself? I think is one last nugget we can get from, from you as an operator. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think that the, the um, you know, there's a lot of ways to sort of measure what the, what the exit strategy should be. So I don't want to, I don't want this to come off as just financial because- Most people, most people's ex- exit strategy in the restaurant industry is die. So, I mean- Yeah, I mean, I, I, the idea of to think that you're going to sell your restaurant or restaurant group to another group um, is not, is not likely. Um, so, you know, they're, they're uh, like the only way to really build, um, you know, enough value is to have enough demand, right? So one four wall of a box, no matter what is not going to be enough demand unless you are a destination where people are coming from all over the world, right? So you have to step back and think about it. How do I build enough demand for my, for my business um, that the value um, is greater than the, you know, that the output is greater than the input. Um, and that's, that's a, that's a tough one with restaurants. And so I think that, you know, the more that, um, that people in the food business can think about other ways to generate revenue within their sort of um, um, within their business is, is going to be the best way to, to, um, have some sort of an exit strategy in, in that regard. So uh, what, what are the best ways you see people, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but reiterate, you, you talked about the new opportunity and some of these, these spaces, these uh, void commercial spaces, but what are, what are some of the things that people are doing that you think is a great way to diversify a portfolio for a restaurant? Uh, yeah. I mean, look, look, I think that there's, there's a, there's a ton that are already becoming um, more prevalent. Like uh, I think virtual kitchens is, is certainly um, not going away. I think CPG is another big one uh, that people have an opportunity. Uh, uh, consumer packaged goods. So, so um, you know, the, like taking your products and, um, and productizing them to be in, in stores. Right. I, I think um, uh, there's an opportunity there because I think the, the thing to remember is, and again, I think I'm, the, the 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 word exit strategy is where I get stuck a bit because I think of exit as um, as an acquisition right or selling the selling your company um, or I think of it as like getting out of an industry and getting into another one so or you know retiring you know selling yeah. your business as an asset to stop working yeah absolutely so so um, you know I think as it pertains to to a technology company of course you you know you you're like for me I'm I'm I I think about Right now, I actually I try not to think about uh, the exit because I have so, I have so much more I want to build with Mies, and for me, I just I love doing this. Um, and I think that you know the, the the sooner I start thinking about an exit, the the sooner my focus is being taken away from um, what matters today. That said, everybody has to have an, an exit strategy. Like in any, if you go to any sort of investor, right, they're going to ask you. Um, 
you know, what is, you know, either what is your exit or how do you scale this to a hundred million, right? And so you have to have that answer at least somewhat in, in your head of, of um, here's, here's the tactics that I'll need to be able to get to like X amount of revenue. And if you don't have that already thought out, um, it's not just going to happen. You know, it's not just going to like one day you're just going to generate more, more revenue. So I think in the restaurant business, there's, there's, there's lots of ways to go about it. Like I said, you know, uh, virtual kitchens and CCGs, shared services, um, you know, food service, uh, outposts. There's, there's a ton of things that, you know, that you can do if you want, um, you know, the, the whole, the, the, the restaurant, the, the whole restaurant game is really how do you increase um, the ceiling? How do you make your ceiling higher, right? If you, if you think that right now your four, your four walls can do 3 million, how do you make that 4 million? And then how do you reduce your theoretical food cost, right? So uh, your theoretical costs in general, right? So if, if theoretically it should be a 30% COGS and I can get to the 25% and I'm, I can only do 3 million, but now I can do four. That's how you start. You, you know. Do you know of any good good tools out there that can help us reduce our? Yeah, food? I got I got a, I've got a couple ideas. For <laughs> so real quick, well, how is Mies helping us reduce our food costs? And we'll wrap up on that question, uh, and then yeah. we'll start doing some Q and A. Sure. So I mean, I think we, we we specifically built the engineering piece of the recipe to 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 do just that. And so, you know, I don't want to oversimplify this, but but um, it is not easy to um to see as you're creating uh, creating your recipes what that means in terms of cost, what that means in terms of profit, what that means in terms of um, how you should sell it. Um, and we've, we built within Mies, um, you know, first of all, the recipes in Mies look like a recipe that you actually use, not a, not a, an invoice. And so your chef or the chef, if you're the one that, that, that's listening, you know, as you're creating your recipe, uh, every time you uh, change something, you're going to see that, that, that food cost percentage, that profit, and that sell price change, right? And then you can start to pull those levers. We have li literally, there's just levers that you can that you can pull um, to 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 change that 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 cost. So maybe I'll add on a couple more, um, you know, a couple more grams of um, of provolone, but I'm going to reduce the you know the whatever the prosciutto by this much. Um, and then you scale, you, you do the same thing with a menu, right? So um, you know, if the theoretical food cost of your menu is 24%, then I change this recipe, then, um, then now my, now my, my food cost percentage just went down that there's not really an eye into that right now in the restaurant business. And so that's, that's what we're building with Mies. I love it. I've loved this conversation. We're going to open it up now. Um, if you want to have questions about Mies, where to find it, how to use it, uh, features, we do still have a few people. We had a, a good amount of people that were hanging out with us. Some have dropped off. Uh, that's what happens when I go on too long. Uh, but hopefully some of you who have stuck around do have some questions. If you do have a question, go ahead and raise your hand. Um, Mario Love. Oh, I think she was talking about, Anna Tazen was talking about um, my clubhouse with Mario. <laughs> that's going to be happening in about an hour and a half on my drive down to New York. Um, not all at once, you guys. I'm going to start to call on people. It's what I do. So any hands going up? If you don't know how to raise your hand, just click over, hover over your name and tap the more button. And then there's an option to raise your hand. Um, or you can just go ahead and turn your video on if you want. And uh, you can literally raise your hand. No. All right. No questions. So I, everyone's shy today. Um, I, you answered my questions, man, uh, for what it's worth. Um, 
anything that we have not discussed up to this point that you were hoping would come out of the conversation that did not come out of the conversation? No, I didn't, I didn't have too much, too many expectations. So I think we're, I think we're, uh, I think this was great, man. It was good to catch up with you. Yeah. See you sure. um, so yeah, thanks, man. My pleasure. So um, real quick, before we say goodbye, um, how can we connect with you? If you want to learn more about Mies, uh or we want to connect with you personally, what's the best way to connect? Uh, so you can go to uh, getmees.com. Uh, that's our that's our website, and uh, lots of ways to sort of uh, try out the product or book a demo. Um, I can throw my um, you know my my email up uh, that, that you can actually get the email right from the website as well. Um, but um, yeah, on the website there's probably twenty different ways to 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 get a hold of us. So. Beautiful. And uh, this was a live recording. If you guys are interested in joining the conversation, uh, if you want to listen to these episodes live real time, you can do that. Head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com to have access to me regularly and the restaurant tours I have on the show. And uh, it's just a a community of Restaurant Unstoppable loyal listeners. It's lonely at the top. It doesn't have to be. um, And I'm going to be giving Josh uh, lifetime access to that network as well. It's up to him if he wants to join it, but maybe that's another way you might be able to connect with Josh. And um, the plan is within the network around the time this episode goes live, which it's, it's scheduled to go live around February uh, 18th. Um, I'm, I'm going to be connecting with the little beat in New York city. That's why I'm driving to the little beat. Uh, we're going to be demo demoing the product uh, in New York. Uh, so hopefully we have some content to, uh, to go that will be associated with this episode. Um, and I would love to do a live demo of little beats in the network maybe a week after this episode goes live so if you guys are interested in connecting live with josh in the network and myself uh, head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 780 this is episode 780 i'll have links to join the network uh we'll probably have the recording of that demo with the, li- the with little beats in the show notes as well if you want to see what me's looks like and uh, we wrap up every show, Josh, by calling somebody out. So who's somebody you respect and admire in this industry? Somebody you look up to that if you knew I was interviewing this person tomorrow, you'd be, you'd be listening to that episode. Who do you respect and admire? Call them out. Do you mean in the, in the restaurant industry? Yes. Um, there's, there's so many. Do you mean, in, do you want a restaurant, restaurant person or a tech person? A restaurant tour. Who's a restaurant tour that you think has an incredible story? Who, if it was a guest on the show, like my traditional restaurant tour guests are, who would make a great guest mentor? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I mean, honestly, I, I, I actually really, uh, I really think you get a kick out of t- talking with John Rigos. Um, he's a restaurant tour, but he's also just a, um, just a super sharp dude. Um, so. He's he's probably a great one. I mean, look, I think there's so many of them though that that, that uh. That, What's that John's great. restaurant group? John? No, no, John's from Orify. He's the CEO of Orify. Oh, oh, thank you, uh, John. Look, I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show, and um, I think that's everything. And I will say, um, we have discussed that there there is an affiliate opportunity here with me. So if you do use my links to check out me as you are supporting the show. And I just want to say thank you very much in advance. So with that said, uh, thank you so much, Josh, for taking the time to share your story and to, uh, you know, create some awareness about what you're doing over there with me. And there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thanks brother. Thank you very much. 
There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Josh Sharkey, thank you so much for coming on the show to share your story and to share the, the come up of Mies. I'm really excited about this tool. I think it's going to be a game changer. Uh, if I was a chef getting started, I know that I would just for myself, use this tool to keep my stuff organized. And the thing I love about it is that it can scale and grow with you as you scale and grow in your career. And you can literally take all these lessons you've learned. You can let your team have access to these lessons, your recipes. You can step-by-step share your recipes with the videos. You can cost out things down to the penny. And it's just so it's such a, like a what's the word, uh, versatile tool that I think I would be so excited about to get my fingers on this thing if I if I was running my restaurant right now. So um, just so you guys know, again, uh, Mies is going to pay us out a 25% commission if you use our link. Head over to getmies.com slash unstoppable, and we will get credit for putting Mies on your plate uh, on your uh, radar and that goes so far that helps the podcast so much and just a reminder to come hang out in the network if you were a part of the network when we recorded this you could have literally connected face to face with the ceo of me's josh sharkey and asked your questions we also host weekly shop talks weekly uh coffee with eric twice a week actually coffee with eric where i'm just making myself available to you me and a, a group of other restaurant owners and operators are just brainstorming helping each other out it's lonely at the top but it does not need to be we're doing tech talks where i'm literally in a very journalistic approach going after the tools and services and the people using those tools and services to share information and really to do screen sharing and to do step by step like well how'd you do that how'd you do that and how to get the most out of these tools you're investing in and we're just there to learn together and i want you to be a part of it so if you want to join the network head over to the show notes again this is episode 780 you'll find a link to me's you'll also find a link to join the network and even better if you scroll all the way down to the bottom of that page you can sign up for the email list and when you're on the email list, you can get a, a link to get a 30-day trial of Restaurant Unstoppable. So I cannot wait to meet you. I can't wait to serve you. And that all happens over at RestaurantUnstoppableNetwork.com. All right, guys. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.